It's always good to sing victory in Jesus. That last uh, verse, though, I couldn't tell if you were saying victory in Jesus or I'll fly away. It's good. It's good. Well, thank you, uh, Tim, for sharing the announcements, but also bringing the uh, the scripture this morning from Romans uh, chapter 5. It reminded me of what I'm about to share with you even before the sermon, before the sermon, is uh, what we have. I'm going to direct your attention to Philippians 2. Uh, it coincides with Romans 5, where it talks about we have many precious gifts that we have been given faith. Because of faith, we have peace with God. We have been given hope, hope that does not disappoint us. We have been given love, love that's shown to us only by our Heavenly Father. And also, it says there in Romans 5, never really focused on it until Tim just read it there, that we have been given another special gift, the most precious gift, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been poured out into our hearts. So I want to remind you of this precious gift again this morning from Philippians 2 as you are reminded of what you have because we are deceived into thinking or we are tempted into thinking about things that we don't have. I know I am. as why I don't have this and I need this or I think I need this. And so let me remind you, if you are a believer this morning and united to Christ, of the great comfort you have from Philippians 2. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. That is a good reminder this morning that we have been brought together by the Spirit of God to believe in Christ and to exalt His holy name. So I hope that we are encouraged this morning um, by the Spirit, and as the Spirit leads us, as the Spirit led me this past week, I hope we are encouraged by this morning's message, not from Philippians 2, but rather from two different places, from Acts and Ephesians. We are going to talk about baptism this morning. We've talked about that before. Um, it is a wonderful gift to the church, an ordinance to the church. And let me ask you this morning, do you remember when you were baptized? I sure do. I remember that day very clearly. I was baptized with my mother in April of 1991, and it was very significant for me as I began this journey, this step of obedience. I read about several people who were baptized this past week. One individual kind of caught my attention, John Smith. I know that's such a common name, but there is a well-known theologian named John Smith, not S-M-I-T-H, S-M-Y-T-H. He was a well-known Baptist, and he thought baptism was so important, he baptized himself when he read of the ordinance. He made sure that it was done quickly. Now, I'm not advocating the, the mode of baptizing yourself, but I do want us to understand how important the ordinance is. So, in the life of many churches, the questions that revolve around baptism come up on occasion. And as many of you know, we have wrestled with the mode of baptism in light of recent questions. And I do want us to to understand two things about baptism. It is very important, but also it is not necessary for salvation. Now, I want to put a caveat on that because it is... um, It is a step of obedience, and it's not something we are to take lightly. But what I mean by it's not necessary, I want us to understand that salvation does, I mean, that baptism does not save. In fact, I've got evangelical, Bible-believing, Christ followers, uh, 
friends, as I'm sure you do as well, who disagree with me on the question of in the mode of baptism. I have friends who are Methodist, friends who are Presbyterian, friends who are Anglican, who all have different views on what baptism signifies. How is it to be carried out? What does it mean? Church of Christ people have a different that's not about, people who are Church of Christ um, have a different view on uh, baptism. So that's not to question their salvation. That's not to question who they are trusting in. But we must recognize that there are differences of opinion on this issue. But I want us to look this morning as a Baptist church and as a Baptist pastor, what does the scriptures teach about baptism? Because the most important question is not what does this denomination teach or what does this denomination teach, and it's not even what do I believe, but rather what do the scriptures teach about this ordinance. And there is lots of, I was actually surprised how many times baptism, Baptist, John the Baptist, is used throughout the New Testament, close to 100 instances where baptism is mentioned. Maybe that's not surprising to you, it's surprising to me. And in fact, this morning I was talking with Stephen and he was, uh, he's, he's one of my uh, biggest encouragers. He's like, all right, we ready for Matthew 13 this morning? I said, well, uh, we're going to take a little break, we'll get back there. And we're talking about baptism. And he had a good memory, he said, so obviously you're going to refer back to Matthew 3 when Jesus was baptized. I said, well, that's, that's a great point, that is a great, that is a great passage. But we aren't going to look at that one in particular, even though that is a good passage. We're going to look at two specific examples of, of baptism, one in Ephesians and one in Acts chapter 2. But before we begin in those passages, let me encourage you to write down some passages that we won't have time to turn to this morning. So if you want to look at these later, again, Stephen pointed out Matthew 3, where Jesus is baptized, verses 11 through 17. Again, later at the Great Commission, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Mark chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Acts, we're going to look at Acts 2 in just a minute, but Acts 8, verses 36 and 30 through 38, that's the Ethiopian eunuch there. He says, there's some water, why shouldn't I be baptized? Acts 16, verses 31 through 33. Romans 6, 1 through 8, I often reference that when we do do a baptism. Uh, did I mention Mark yet? Okay, I already mentioned Mark. Galatians 3, 27 and 28. And Colossians 2 verse 12. Now that's not a hundred references, but that's just a few key sections that we can look at at baptism. But this morning, again, as I said, we're going to look at Ephesians 4 and Acts chapter 2. So if you would, will you stand with me please as we honor the reading and preaching of God's holy word. This is Ephesians chapter 4. Oops, sorry. Ephesians chapter 4. And then we'll turn over to Acts 2. Ephesians 4 says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Okay, now let's turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. We're only going to spend a little bit of time in Ephesians, but I did want to Reference that passage. Now, Acts chapter 2, the main 
part we're going to look at is verses 38 through 41. But for context, let's look a little bit more at this uh, sermon by Peter. Acts 2, beginning in verse 22, Peter is preaching at Pentecost, and Peter says these words, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his, to- his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the disciples, or the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were, at, they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, as we read your word, we see its power, we see your power. Father, we see what you have done in the changing of lives, in the adding of 3,000 souls to the church. And so, Father, let us not look upon this passage with great reverence as something that has happened just of yesterday. But Lord, let us remember that you are doing great and wonderful things even today. So Father, we ask, Lord, that you might add to the number of saints in the church universal. We ask, Lord, that you might add to the number of saints, believers, here amongst our midst at Haven Baptist. 
And Father, we want to be a people who obey your word. So Lord, we want to emphasize baptism, not so that we can say we are good and right and and proud Baptists, but Father, so that we might obey you and so that we might say that our baptism points back to our belief and that our baptism points to Christ and that Christ is the head over the church and that Christ is Lord and supreme in our hearts. So Father, I pray that Christ will be supreme and exalted from this pulpit today and always. Lord, I thank you for this time together. Lead us by your Spirit. Remind us of the importance of your commands and teach us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lord, I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well this morning I want us to look very briefly at these two passages. So turn back with me to Ephesians 4, and then we will go back to Acts 2 in just a moment. But in Ephesians 4, we see in the book of Ephesians, again, this powerful book, as Paul writes to the believers there on the importance of being the church, of proclaiming the wisdom of God, of living out their calling, reminding them that they were redeemed um, in Christ. Paul writes to them, he says, there should be unity in the body of Christ. There should be unity based upon the fact that you are called together, called to believe. And so we must see that we are called together. And we see that we are a part of a church. And we see that baptism is essential to who we are, especially as a Baptist church. But again, we must recognize, as we look throughout the New Testament, baptism does not save. We can look to the thief on the cross. We see that he was not baptized. But we also see that baptism is not salvific. That is, it does not save. It is not required, but I, I want to be careful whenever I say it's not required because I don't want to diminish the ordinance as if, okay, that's you know an optional command. Because even though it's not required, it is foundational for believers throughout the ages. In fact, Jesus himself was baptized. He came up out of the water in the Great Commission. He says, go therefore and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we see how important baptism is. Throughout history, I was looking at different examples. One of the greatest examples is Adoniram Judson. Many of us have heard of Adoniram Judson. If you haven't, I encourage you to read his biography. I need to do more of that is reading Christian biographies. And Judson, a great missionary, changed his view on baptism. In fact, he held the view of infant baptism before reading clearly in Matthew 28, of believer's baptism. He had lots of time on the ship sailing to India, so he did a deep theological study, a focused study on baptism. And so he finally arrives in Calcutta, India, June 17, 1812, and now he is convinced of believer's baptism but as a missionary, hasn't been baptized. And so, wow, this is quite a predicament. And so he arrives there in Calcutta in 1812, now ready to obey the commands of Jesus. And in September, a few months past, September 6th, he switches and proclaims that now he is a Baptist missionary, and he and his wife are baptized by immersion in Calcutta. That is amazing in and of itself. Now listen who baptizes him. William Ward. Now, I didn't know who William Ward was, but William Ward was an associate of William Carey. 
the great missionary to India. So now we see here Adoniram Judson baptized by William Carey's associate, William Ward. I say all that to say is that Judson realized the importance of this command. Well, back here in Ephesians 4, Paul instructs the believers of the importance of following Christ. You're called together. You're believers of the same Father, the one who made us and rules over all things, the same Son, the one who is Lord over all, the same Spirit who indwells each and every Christian believer. And then he says that we are not only marked by our beliefs, our beliefs, but we are marked by baptism. This baptism that Paul speaks of is to be shared by all believers. And it's to reflect, here's the key, to reflect the reality of the conversion. My baptism was an important day. Your baptism was an important day. It reflects the reality that you are trusting in Christ and what God has done in redeeming you. Listen to what Tony Morita says. He says, We share a common experience of being spiritually baptized into Christ. We are united with Him. The act of baptism into water pictures this reality. It must picture this reality. It's a reflection of God's power in God's people as they obey Him. So that's why Paul emphasizes that this baptism has brought you together. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Amen. Okay, quickly, let's go to Acts chapter 2. Now you know why I only picked out two passages. There's a lot that we could look at this morning. Acts chapter 2. Again, the focus is on verses 38 through 41. But context is why I wanted us to read a little bit more of Peter's sermon. I didn't read the first half of it. We'll, um, we'll allude to a little bit of it early in just a few moments. But Peter is preaching this sermon at Pentecost. He's preaching boldly. He's preaching eloquently. He's reminding his countrymen of this Jesus that they crucified. You know, this one that you crucified, God planned for him to save you. And so, G- so Peter is preaching clearly, reminding the Israelites who Jesus is, why he came, and why they should believe in him. This is a powerful sermon Peter preaches, and he says, remember David? Yeah, we know David. Remember how there was a descendant coming from David? Oh, yeah, we were waiting for that prophecy. Wait no longer. He is here. He is Jesus. And so Peter preaches clearly, this Jesus, I love in verse 32, this Jesus that you crucified, you're not going to keep him down. You're not going to thwart God's plan. God raised him up from the dead. And he says, and we have a part to play in this story. In verse 32, what does he say? He says, we are all witnesses. We are, we are part of this. So we have to respond. God has exalted Jesus. He's Lord in Christ. He is the Messiah. And so when the people heard this sermon, what happened? It says that their hearts were cut. They were pricked. They were saying, we must do something. We can't just let this fall on deaf ears. We can't just say, this is another uh, poet. This is another prophet who's going to come and leave. No, this man is speaking of the prophet. He's speaking of Jesus. He's speaking of the one we crucified. He's speaking of the one who's raised from the dead. The Messiah is here. So they knew something needed to be done. So they respond with these words, Brothers, what shall we do? 
What does this remind you of? Does this remind you of any other passage of in the scriptures? The Philippian jailer. Remember the Philippian jailer after the earthquake and he thought that he was a dead man because you know, if the prisoners escape, then I'm dead. And so they're still there. They're still waiting. And the Philippian jailer says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I want what you have. I want to believe in your God. I want to do something. So the Philippian jailer, these brothers here, these questions reveal their hearts. The important thing I want you to see here, besides, the, obviously this sermon is bigger than baptism, I want you to see that they recognize they need to do something. They have to respond. Again, God's word is living and active. So they must do something. Peter tells them what to do in verse 38. We're finally to the part, the section on baptism. Peter says to them, and again, baptism is is the minor part of the passage. He says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. They asked a question, they got an answer. I don't know if that's the answer that they wanted. Well, we know it was the answer that they wanted because 3,000 of them followed. So it's pretty clear that they had to do something. And what was that something that they needed to do? They needed to repent. They needed to turn from their sins. They needed to trust in Christ. They needed to follow in baptism. And so they, Peter says, when you do, your sins will be forgiven. Your sins will not hang on your head. Your sins will be forgiven and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But it says here, not only were the people to repent and believe, Peter says, repent and be baptized. Baptized into what? Again, there were other baptisms. There were other things going on, but baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. The baptism was to reflect the belief in Christ. Again, baptism is important to me, it's important to you, it's important to this church, but we're not to see it just as an experience, just as an encounter, just as something we invite our family to, but it is a celebration, but it's a celebration of what? Baptism reminds us that we are believing in Christ. So baptism is important to the early church, obviously, in this passage, but let's continue on. We're going to come back to verse 38. Peter continues in verse 39. What does he say? He says, The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone the Lord our God calls to himself. Now this, this verse has, has led to lots of articles, lots of books, and I'm not going to try to explain all of that in just a few moments. But I think some, or I know some, have used this verse to support infant baptism to say, well, here it is, here in verse 39 or Acts 16 or other places, this verse supports, or at least they think so, their interpretation and conclusion, babies and or infants should be baptized. Well, how do they come to this in conclusion? Well, at least, thankfully, we're looking at scriptures. We're not drawing from somewhere else. But they think that this instance of Peter's declaration in Acts 2 points back to Old Testament promises. So therefore, they can validate, validate baptizing babies of believing parents by this passage. 
Those who advocate such a position of infant baptism are called paedobaptists. The promise that Peter refers to in Acts 2, they say, goes back to Abraham. Goes back to Abraham in Genesis 17. Listen to one paedobaptist, one person who believes in infant baptism. This is his thoughts, Robert Booth. He says, this was a promise that the Jews would have heard of and talked about many times. Since they're now entering the new covenant era of the church, the question of their children's relationship to the church would naturally have been on their minds. To that I said, well, yes, but to this part I say, not so. So being a Jew, Peter was certainly aware of their concern and immediately moved to address the issue. He assures them that the promise was still for them and their children. Well, yes and no, according to what the promise is. Well, let me just get to the quote. If the children of believers are embraced by the promises of the covenant, as certainly they are, then they must also be entitled to receive the initial sign of the covenant, which is baptism. So this is where I think we've gone too far. So whilst such connections, as Booth claims, may support a conclusion for infant baptism, even some, this is where I thought it was quite troubling, even some paedo-baptists, those who believe in infant baptism, like Pierre Marcel, admit there is little direct evidence supporting the practice of infant baptism from the scriptures. That's not good. So, if there is little direct biblical support for something that you believe, you need to reevaluate what you believe based upon the weight of evidence for believers' baptism. So, for the rest of our time this morning, as we look at Acts 2.39, we need to ask three basic questions. So, what are those questions? What is the promise? Question number one. Question number two, who were the recipients of the promise? And question, that's question number two. And then question three, who was baptized? So first, the, the promise. What is the promise? The promise is important, and it's important that we evaluate any verse in light of what? How do we evaluate any light, any verse? It's through Scripture. I think I heard another word, through context. You know, as we look at this verse, we must look at other Scriptures. We must look at that Scripture, that passage, that book. And so, if we're to think about what the promise is, we must look at Acts chapter 2 as a whole in order to evaluate Acts 2.39. So the promise, let me just go ahead and give you the answer. The promise is specifically the promised new age brought about by the Holy Spirit. The promise is the promised new age brought about the Holy Spirit. An age in which is not marked by ethnic boundaries. Ethnic boundaries. Amen? Amen. Amen. But by regeneration and commitment to the Lord. So let me, let me tell you why I think this is the promise. Verses 17 through 21. This is the promise. Peter is quoting from Joel. He says, In the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. On your sons, your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. Those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and the signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. And then down in verse 21, it shall come that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So this is the promise, the promise of the new age brought about by the Holy Spirit. So this is right before what we read in verses 38 and 39. 
So this is not to be applied to the children of believers. It is to be applied to those who are far off and who have been brought near as the Lord God calls them to himself. So that leads to the second question, who are the recipients of the promise? So the first question, what's the promise? Second question is, who are the recipients of the promise? The promise is with the sign of baptism, is for all who receive the gospel in faith and repentance. Those who receive the promise are those who receive the gospel in faith and repentance. The promise is for those who call, who God calls by His grace to believe in Him by faith. Simply put, it's those who trust in Christ. That's in a nutshell. Simply put, it's those who trust in Christ. Those are the recipients of the promise. So let's go to the third question. I know we're going quickly, but the third question is, who were baptized in this passage? When we answer this question correctly, it helps us to apply our practice of baptism today. So those who are baptized here in this passage clearly are those who confess Jesus is the Christ. Those who confess He is the Messiah. And how do we know that? Not only verse 38, but look at verse 41. We read, Those who received His word were baptized. They were added that day about 3,000 souls. So those who receive the word are those who believe the word. They believe the gospel. They repent. They believe the gospel and are baptized. So in my mind, again, as we look at this passage, we look at the context, we see those who are baptized are those who believe. Those who repent and believe. So again, I agree with many Reformed Pado-Baptists on many different matters, but this is not one of them. If we allow for infant baptism here in Acts 2 or anywhere else in Scripture, I believe it incorrectly draws a conclusion from what the passage is teaching. And I know that other brothers uh, um, agree with me that if infant baptism is taught, it will diminish the importance of personal repentance and faith for salvation. Maybe not meaning to, maybe having good intentions, but it will diminish the importance of personal repentance and faith for salvation. God does not regenerate infants apart from faith and repentance as taught in the Scriptures. The Scriptures, let us let me remind us, are our sole guide for what we believe as Baptists. And they are our guide that informs us what we do here as well. Tom Schreiner puts it this way. He says, We are in danger when we institute a belief or practice not taught in Scripture. The Scriptures are to be revered and obeyed. Some would argue that if we, if we ignore overarching themes in Scripture, then we can come to this conclusion. But that's not true. I'm not ignoring themes. I'm not ignoring what God is doing in the Old Testament. We must recognize there is continuity in Scripture. That is, themes continue. There, but there's also discontinuity in Scripture. And so let me put it this way. This next sentence is a mouthful. Um, I read, I don't normally read my sermon to Sheena, but I did read this sentence to her last night. And I said, does this make sense? She says, it does. 
but say it twice. <laughs> so I'm going to say the sentence twice. To baptize infants is to bring over from the old covenant to the new covenant the very structure that the new covenant dismantles. And in doing so, we end up building a system that elevates man's work instead of exalting Christ and his finished work. Let me say that one more time. To baptize infants is to bring over from the old covenant to the new covenant the very structure that the new covenant dismantles. And in doing so, we end up building a system that elevates man's work instead of exalting Christ and his finished work. So baptism is important. As we exalt Christ in obeying Him, this is why this is a monumental step of obedience. Baptism is, this is, I love this, this, this is a simple definition, but baptism is where faith goes public. It's where faith goes public and says, I'm ready to obey Jesus Christ as Lord. And baptism is one criteria where a church recognizes those who follow Christ as Savior and Lord. That's why it's required for church membership, so that we might see that you are ready to follow Him and obey Him. So my question this morning is, I don't want us to see Ephesians and Acts 2 as just a theological lecture or just a topical survey on a subject. I want to ask us this morning, are you following Christ today? I encourage you to do so. And trusting in Him and obeying Him and being baptized Again, as Dennis said last week, if you've got questions, um, I'll try to answer those questions. I'd love to pray with you. I'd love to point you to, again, what God's Word says. Let us pray.